Good morning. My name is John McGuatt. My wife Jess and I are members here and also serve as associate pastor. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 12. So you can go ahead and start turning there in your copy of God's Word. It's also printed in the bulletin for you. You probably remember last week we had the typhoon that came through. And it seems that there's danger all around us. The coronavirus, of course, continues. Now we have the Delta variant that's causing problems all over the world, including China. Last week we had the typhoon. It's the summer, so of course we have high temperatures. It's dangerous to be out in the sun for too long. There's floods all over the world. It seems Europe and China and other places are dealing with floods. There's rising prices that cause dang- causes danger for providing for our families. It's a dangerous world out there. There's lots to worry about. But it's not just natural disasters that are dangerous to us. People can be dangerous as well. Some people want to hurt us or rob us, to take advantage or extort. Even our coworkers and friends can feel dangerous at times because they might think something about us that we don't like, or they might say or do mean things that hurt us. We're in danger all over the place. Well, as these dangers pile up, as we think about these things, they fill our minds, they control what we do during the day, they control our actions. But what if typhoons and the coronavirus and our friends' judgment was not the biggest or deadliest danger that we face? What if there's a bigger danger? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Satan and his kingdom and how he is, his domain is the earth. And he is a real enemy in the unseen, in the spiritual world. He is our enemy. And while he is our enemy and he's extremely dangerous, He's not our biggest danger. Our biggest danger, your biggest danger, is in the chair, in your chair. My biggest danger is behind this podium. Our biggest danger, our biggest threat is our own hearts. The most dangerous threat against us is our wicked hearts. At my core, in my heart, I'm helplessly wicked. My sinful desires must be fought against and killed. And it's only the work of God through His Holy Spirit that can make my heart right with Him. And it's the same for all of us. Our hearts are wicked at their core, at the very bottom of them. We're not good, we're evil. And it's God who works through His Holy Spirit to change us to be right with Him. And it's a battle, and it will be a battle until we die. Now there's many dangers that face us in our hearts. There are dangers to our lives. We need to know and understand these spiritual dangers that are before us. When the typhoon was coming through last weekend, I cannot count how many times I opened my weather app. I was constantly checking to see what's the level of the warning, what color is it now, what does it say the wind speed is going to be, how much rain are we going to get. And I really enjoyed checking the path of the the typhoon as well. But just like that, checking to see what is this danger, when is it coming, how is it going to look when it arrives, we need to be doing something similar in our spiritual lives. We need to pay attention to the dangers of our heart. This passage we're going to look at today 
Jesus warns his followers of several dangers, dangers that start with the heart. So in our passage is, uh, our passage we're looking at today is Luke 12, 1 to 21. Luke 12, verses 1 to 21. I'm going to read the passage and you follow along and see if you can identify the dangers that Jesus is warning us about. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. This is God's word. The main message, the big idea of this passage is this. Watch out. Remain faithful to God in the face of many dangers. Watch out. Yes, you must include the watch out part. Watch out. Remain faithful to God in the face of many dangers. Remain faithful to God in the face of many dangers. You may have noticed there's four dangers. We're going to take this in four parts. Verses 1 to 3, 4 to 7, 8 to 12, and 13 to 21. I believe it's split up that way in your bulletin. 
four dangers. The first one is hypocrisy. Danger number one, hypocrisy. If you need to know how to spell it, it's the very last word of verse one, hypocrisy. This is when our actions don't match our words. And today I have a briefer version of each point. If you're into math, you will like this. Today is actions do not equal words. The do not does not equal sign, it's equal with a slash through it. Actions do not equal words. You're welcome for all the math nerds. I'm also one of those. So the first danger, hypocrisy. Let's look back at verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So the crowds continue to get bigger and bigger around Jesus. Now to many thousands, so many that it says they're trampling each other. Back in Luke 6, we saw how Jesus was speaking to the crowds. But it seemed that the whole crowd at that point was amazed by Jesus. They were very interested in what he has to say. But as time has gone from Luke 6 to Luke 12, we know that the crowd has become more dramatic. There's more tense tension in the crowd. It's no longer everyone amazed or just leaning in to listen. There are those who don't like what Jesus is saying, and they're trying to trap him, trying to catch him saying something wrong. The Pharisees are there, the lawyers. There's others who want to justify themselves. They want to know that they're right with God, even though they don't want to follow Jesus. There's some that are challenging Jesus, calling out and saying things or asking things. So this is the context, this crowd around Jesus, some of who don't like him. It says he begins to speak to his disciples first. And he tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now leaven is uh, another name for yeast. It's what makes bread rise and become fluffy and taste very good. The yeast creates a chemical reaction with the other ingredients in the bread, such that it's changed forever. You cannot ever separate back out all the parts of the bread dough once the yeast is put in. It has a large effect, but it's very small. A little bit of yeast can go a long way in the dough. So here we see a large crowd trampling each other. It's actually the picture of dough being mixed together. It's like this crowd is the dough. Jesus is using the crowd that's trampling each other as a picture of, and here's the, the few Pharisees who are there, but they're like the yeast. They get mixed in and they have a great impact on the whole crowd. And it's their hypocrisy that has this impact. Jesus says that the leaven of this, the yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying one thing, but doing something different. Or in the case of the Pharisees especially, it's giving the impression of loving God, but not actually loving God. The Pharisees were known for doing great things so that people would see them. Last week, Peter preached from chapter 11 of Luke, where Luke 11.42 says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So here the Pharisees are living as if they love God by tithing. But Jesus can see their heart and see that they don't really love God. They're doing it 
to look good in front of people, to gain power and status. So Jesus is warning his followers that this hypocrisy that the Pharisees are guilty of is going to be tempting for them too. They must be careful not to fall into this same hypocrisy of pretending, doing the actions of loving God, but not really loving Him. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus continues to warn them. He says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. He says that whatever you've said in secret it's going to be made known. Nothing will be hidden. The Pharisees or anyone else cannot pretend to love God and get away with it forever. Numbers 32 says, Be sure your sins will find you out. This was a warning to the tribes of Israel, to Gad and to Reuben. They had committed to fight with the uh, Israelite tribes who were going into the Promised Land. So they were warned that if you come in and you don't actually fight with us, if you don't keep your word, you're going to be sinning. It's the, it's the same as lying, it's saying one thing, but something else is true. That's what hypocrisy is. So the point here is Jesus' disciples are in danger of being like the Pharisees if they say they believe in Jesus or they pretend to follow him or pretend to love him, but in their heart they don't really the Pharisees said they loved God, but Jesus had already condemned them for saying that they loved God because their hearts were far from Him. So this warning is for us as well. We can go through the motions and make it look like we love God. We can show up on Sunday and have a smile on our face and say everything is great when it's not really. We should always be on the lookout for hypocrisy in our lives and we should root it out. This week, take some time. Today, tomorrow morning, pray and ask God to show you in what ways you make it look like you love Him, but you really don't. In what ways am I being a hypocrite? It could be helpful to read and meditate on Psalm 193. Psalm 193, especially the last two verses. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a great way to pray to God that he would search us, reveal to us where we're being a hypocrite, because we probably are. If we're not right now, we will be. This is so easy to do, to say one thing, to act like one way, but not actually believe it. We need to be Aware, we need to be cautious of this danger and be checking often. If we say we believe in Jesus, but we don't live like someone who believes in Jesus, then our hearts are not right with God. And he mentions that we cannot hide in hypocrisy forever. We can get away with it for a while, but sooner or later, either in this lifetime or at the final judgment before God, it will be made known. It will be very clear where our heart is. So for us who are Christians, if we have put our faith in Jesus, 
We don't have to fear that final judgment. We want to look for hypocrisy in our life and get rid of it. We can know that as we confess that we have sinned, as we confess hypocrisy, we turn back to God by His grace. He faithfully forgives us and changes us from the inside by the work of His Spirit. So that's danger number one. Actions, when our actions do not match our words. And our actions do not equal our words. Danger number two is verses four to seven. This is when we fear the wrong things. When we fear the wrong things. For the math equation, it's fear is greater than God. Fear is greater than God. That's the danger. Let's look at four. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. <laughs> Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many you have more value than many sparrows. So Jesus here in verse 4 says, I tell you. This is his uh, another warning to his disciples. He's going to say the same thing in verse 8 as well. He says, Don't fear people who can kill the body, but have nothing to do with your soul. He's saying, Don't fear people. People can kill us. People can have power over us and do things really terrible to us, but they have nothing they can do to our soul. So Jesus is saying we should not fear those people. People are in real danger. There are individuals, groups, even governments that do not want us to meet as Christians or to tell other people about Jesus or to live a life of faithfulness. It's possible that we could have persecution from these individuals or groups. It's possible that some of us could be jailed Maybe even some of us or someone we know could be killed for their faith in Jesus. This was certainly the case for Jesus' disciples. He knew what they were going to face one day, and very soon. Jesus knew that their lives were in danger, and he was preparing them for that danger by reminding them and teaching them not to fear what man can do. There's more to this life. There's more to eternity than just what happens on earth and what happens to our body. And Jesus himself led the way by allowing people, men, to kill him, knowing that they had no power over his soul. So we shouldn't fear man. Who or what should we fear? Jesus answers this in verse 5. He says, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. So we should fear the one who can kill and cast into hell, who has power over the soul, or who has power to cast into hell. But it's God alone. Only God is the judge. He's the only one who determines the eternal fate of all people and angels. And that fate is either heaven Eternity with God, or hell, eternity 
without God, separated from him in torment. So Jesus says it's right to fear God because he's the only one worth fearing. He's the only one worthy of our fear. So we should say no to fearing people. We say yes to fearing God. But let's look at verse 6. He can, Jesus continues and says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? A sparrow is a small bird, and it's apparently sold in the marketplace. It's not very expensive. The footnote in my Bible says that a penny is one-sixteenth of a day's wage. So if I calculated it correctly, made some estimations, the five sparrows would cost around 100 RMB. So five small birds for 100 RMB. That's the price. I looked on Taobao, so you can't buy sparrows. <laughs> but you can buy uh, fertilized chicken eggs that are guaranteed to hatch into little baby chicks. And for 63 RMB, you can buy six chicks on Taobao. So if we were going to contextualize this statement, we could say, are not six chicks sold for 63 RMB on Taobao? And not one of them is forgotten before God. The same idea. <laughs> and then seven, Jesus continues. He says that God knows the numbers of hairs on our heads. Not only does he know it, he has numbered them. This gives the idea that he's labeled them. So if we lose a hair, he knows which hair that is that came out. He has them numbered. Now the, the average human head has somewhere around 100,000 hairs. That's sure one, 100,000. Now, I know some of you here have zero, but just think that when you had hair, God knew how many you had. He's, he knows how many you lost. I'm sorry to that happened. But how incredibly powerful and amazing our God is that he would have the capacity to know every small bird and what happens to that small bird and to have the capacity to know how many hairs we have on our heads. I have a hard time remembering my own phone number and Jesus has numbered every one of the hairs on my head. That's incredible that he would be that big to know what happens to every single bird, to know what happens to every hair on my head. That's how big our God is. And he's the one that we should fear. But notice in the middle of verse 7. It says, fear not. Fear not. So, with fear not, I'm a little confused because verse 4 says, do not fear. Verse 5 says, fear God. And then here we see, fear not. So why does Jesus have fear, don't fear, fear, fear not? Well, this is important for us to, to think about. If God is powerful, but not loving, then we should fear him. We should be afraid of him. We should be scared of him. But he says, fear not, because God is loving. So we do fear God. We respect him. We have the utmost respect for him. We want to magnify him and worship him as God. But we don't have to fear 
the eternal destruction. We don't have to we don't have to fear hell or his punishment because he is good and loving, because he cares for us. But verse 7 is describing how big God's care is for his people, and that we don't need to fear the punishment that he would give out to sinners because we are his people, because he loves us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. God has provided a way of safety and out of this danger. But we fear God as the Almighty Judge. This fear of God's judgment, uh, but, but the, the fear is it's not a fear that keeps us up at night, that causes us to be anxious or scared. No, it's a fear of highest respect and admiration for the Almighty God. 1 John 4 helps to clarify this idea, this relationship between fear and love. 1 John 4, 18 and 19 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loves, loved us. So this is similar, think about a child with their parents. A young child that's learning right and wrong. They may fear the discipline of their parents. They understand, even at a very young age, maybe one or two, that if I put my hand in the toilet, I will experience some kind of uncomfortable or painful sensation. There is something to pay for doing this. I know that I should not. They fear the discipline of their parents. This is similar to us fearing God. He has the power to cast into hell. But as the child grows, hopefully they would grow to love their parents and recognize that their parents' discipline of them, the teaching, the things that they say, is out of love. That their parents love them. And so then they want to obey out of love, not out of fear of being punished. And this is similar for us in our walk with the Lord. Jesus is saying that we should fear God. We fear God for the pain that he would give for, for sinning against him. Because he has the power and the right to send us to hell for our sin. But there is grace. That's what the last section is for. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. This is the grace of God that's shining through. Like the first John passage, God's love casts out the fear of condemnation, of being sent to hell, and it's replaced with the love of a good and loving Heavenly Father. So to summarize this point, we should not fear man because they have no control, no power over our soul. It's right to fear God because he can cast into hell but we don't have to fear him or be afraid of him because he loves us and has provided a way for us to be in a right relationship with him. So danger number one was actions do not equal words. This was danger number two, where fear is greater than God. Now danger number three, verses eight to 12, 
is denial, the danger of denial, or the danger of ignoring God, not listening to Him. The math equation here is faith equals zero. Faith equals zero. Like verse 4, in verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you. It's introducing another warning about another danger. And he, he warns his disciples about the danger of their heart. Let's look at 8 to 12. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you sh how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So here Jesus says that anyone who acknowledges him before men will be acknowledged before the angels of God, will also be acknowledged by God. So acknowledge is to recognize, but not just to say like, oh yeah, I think I've seen that guy before. This acknowledge means to confess, to agree with, or identify with. So when you see acknowledge, it means to identify with. So if anyone who identifies with Jesus before men, that God will, Jesus will also identify with them or claim them as his own before the angels of God. So how do we identify or acknowledge Jesus before men? It's helpful to look at Acts chapter 2. At the end of Peter's first sermon after the Holy Spirit had come upon the apostles, Peter shares the gospel with the people of Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, he says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, that is, the people of Jerusalem listening to Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then further down in verse 47, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see here in Acts, there's two important parts of acknowledging Jesus before men. And those are baptism and church membership. So it says, Peter answers them, it says to repent and be baptized. The repentance part is confessing that their sin is evil before God and that they need a Savior. It includes turning to God, putting their faith in Jesus as their Savior. The baptism part is a display of that faith. It's an acknowledgement before men that they identify as a Jesus follower, as a Christian. And that's still true today. We are to be baptized to publicly, publicly confess our identity with Christ, that we are in Christ, we are believers. In this verse and others say that we should baptize in the name of Jesus. So if you claim to be a Christian, but you have not been baptized since you became a believer, then you need to take the first step in obeying Jesus by acknowledging God before man. 
through baptism and doing that into membership of a local church. That's verse 47 that I read. And the Lord added to their number. It was known who was part of the body of believers there in Jerusalem. If you want to learn more about baptism, there's a great, very small book on the book table. If you need help finding it, let me know. It's that small. No, it's, uh, it's called Baptism, Understanding Baptism. I read it recently. It was very helpful for me. I recommend it to you if you have questions about baptism. It's quick to read. I think it's 50 pages or something. Don't be intimidated. <laughs> All right, so then in verse 10, let's keep looking at what Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says, he makes the distinction between speaking against the Son of Man and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The distinction is, if someone speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven, but someone blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Why is this distinction made? Is it because the Holy Spirit is more sensitive than Jesus and can't take a rude comment? I don't think that's what it is. That's not the purpose. The speaking a word is, a word is short, um, is quick. And it says that someone speaking a word receives forgiveness. The, the idea here is, like one commentator says, the door is not shut for someone to still enter into the salvation that Jesus brings. If someone speaks against Jesus, like the Pharisees have been doing, the Pharisees can still repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. They, they still have that opportunity. The door is still open for them right now. I know that there are some faithful Christians with us today who at one time, before their conversion, spoke many words against Jesus. They were antagonistic toward Christians about their faith. But by God's grace, God opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel, and now they are counted among the believers. They're an example that the door is still open. They spoke words against Jesus but there was still opportunity for them to be saved. But blaspheming, blaspheming, the Holy Spirit seems to be different than this. One source says that blasphemy represents an offense against God and a violation of fundamental principle of the faith that gives glory to Him. In other words, blasphemy is on purpose willful opposition to the gospel. It's a voluntary rejection of Jesus Christ that lasts until the end. So someone is, someone blasphemes against the Holy Spirit by rejecting the message of Jesus at the time of their death. This is someone who goes their whole life and never believes in Jesus, is not faithful, does not believe. But it's a voluntary rejection of Jesus. This is not an accidental, I, I never knew. Romans said that we are all, Romans says that we are all accountable. Jesus continues in verse 11 to 12 and describes the role of the Holy Spirit in helping believers and what they should say under questioning about their faith. Again, Jesus knew that the disciples were going to face persecutions. He knew that 
he needed to warn them that there was going to be a time where they were going to answer for their faith. And he's telling them not to worry about how they should defend themselves or what to say, but that the Holy Spirit would tell them and teach them what to say. Now, if you're not a Christian today, then you're in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Anyone who dies without faith in Jesus will be guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This voluntary rejection of Jesus as Savior. So friends, watch out. As we're going to see in the next point, we don't know how long we have. Don't wait any longer. As long as we are alive, as long as our heart is beating and we have breath, then the door of salvation is still open. There is still a way to salvation, and that is through Jesus. So friends, believe in Jesus today. I'm here, others are here after the service to talk to you. Please come talk to us if you have questions, if you're not sure where your heart is, if you are in the Lord or not. Now, Christian brothers and sisters, we can also apply this to our lives, and the application is to remain faithful to the Lord. Just like the disciples needed to trust that the Holy Spirit would teach them in that very hour what to say when they're under persecution, we truly must trust God that He works in us and through us through the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit that He has given as a helper helps us related to all things of faithfulness, helps us to be faithful. We should look to Him and turn to Him, depend on the Holy Spirit to help us in this walk of faithfulness. A good place to look, to read further on this is Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.18 says that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at that later to understand more about the Holy Spirit's involvement and God's call on our lives. Now we've been through three dangers. Actions not equal to words. Fear greater than God. This one, faith, the danger of faith equaling zero. The final danger that we look at today is the danger of coveting. Coveting. This is when we want it now. To covet is to want something now. The math equation is now is greater than later. Now is greater than later. That was maybe a stretch, but it's the best I can do. This is verse 13 to 21. Let's look at those verses again. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God has said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have pre- prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
So the first three warnings, the first three dangers, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, which would not have been just the 12 apostles, but other followers who were truly following him. And he's doing that with the large crowd of thousands around him. And here, Luke tells us that someone from the crowd, who we can maybe guess is not a disciple, but just someone from the crowd, stands up and asks Jesus a question. The man wants help. He wants Jesus to tell his brother to share his inheritance. Somehow this man is left out of the inheritance. He thinks he should have more than what he's actually getting. Jesus responds with, Man, why are you asking me this? Who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Am I the ones to settle these kind of disputes? But he apparently sees the man's heart. This is why he turns to the others. Luke says that he says to them, so he's saying to all of them who are listening, he says to, to take care, to guard against all covet, covetousness. So to covet is to, to want things now, to, to want what I want, and I don't want to have to wait for it. It's also can be the idea of being satisfied with the things of the world. This man wanted the inheritance because he needed, he wanted to be satisfied with the things of the world. That's what Jesus is pointing out in verse 15 when he says, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This man wanted an abundance of possessions to feel satisfied. Jesus continues teaching through a parable about a rich man. Says the, the rich man had so much that he needed to build bigger barns just to hold all the grain and goods that he had. And then notice it in verse 19. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, I find it odd that he's talking to his soul. <laughs> And it's interesting, too, that Jesus brings this up in saying his soul. Because earlier we talked about we should not fear man who, who have no power over our soul. Our soul is spiritual, and people cannot kill the soul. But yet here this man is trying to satisfy his soul in worldly things. Just as people in this world cannot kill our soul, our soul is not satisfied in worldly possessions. That's Jesus, one of Jesus' points here. So he speaks to his own soul. He doesn't say, oh good, my family will be cared for. He doesn't say, I'll be able to bless many people with all these goods. He doesn't even thank God for blessing him with a fruitful season. No, he assumes that his soul will now be satisfied with his earthly treasure. I think this is similar to playing a board game. If I play a board game and I collect a pile of cardboard that looks like gold, so in the game, I win the game because I have the most gold. I have a, a massive collection of treasure or gold or resources or points. I could win the game and I'm like, I won. I'm amazing. Look at me. But then what happens? Everybody who's playing the game works together to put all the gold back in a little plastic bag, all the pieces go into the box and we put the cover on. My life is not impacted or changed. I walk away, I'm not really rich anymore. I was rich in the game. The only effect is that my friends don't want to play with me because I brag about winning. <laughs> but really, our lives are, are unchanged by this, as far as resources 
and satisfaction goes. That's what this man is doing in building up treasure for himself on earth. It's like building a massive pile of monopoly money. When the game's done, he doesn't take it with him and it's useless. When we covet, we do the same thing. We seek to satisfy our soul with worldly things that can never satisfy our soul. When we want what someone else has, when we want something because we want our soul to be satisfied, then we are coveting. We are trying to satisfy ourselves away from the Lord. Now this is not the first brother conflict that shows up in the Bible. If you remember from the Old Testament, Cain and Abel, the first brothers, also had a conflict. Cain was not rich toward God. He was jealous of his brother's blessing from God. And so he murdered his brother. And then Jacob and Esau are another example. Esau also was not rich toward God. No, he, he had to have a bowl of stew right now. He was coveting that bowl of stew, so much so that he sold his birthright, he sold his inheritance to his brother for that right now bowl of food. But we don't know the time when our soul is going to be required of us, just like the man in the story. We don't know the day and the time of our death. So we should prepare for the end, not by amassing great amounts of wealth, but by being rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? How are we rich toward God? Well, it means having faith in Jesus and walking faithfully with him. We must repent of our sin, believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and then follow him as a disciple. Remember back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. After that, he said, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And then again in Luke 18, I mean, sorry, Luke 11, 28. Luke 11. Jesus says the person, that a person is blessed by God when they hear the word of God and keep it. They hear the word of God and keep it. We are rich toward God when we hear his word and we follow him and we keep it. One of Jesus' disciples, uh, the disciple Peter, who would have been there that day, he would later write a letter. And in that letter, which is the book of 1 Peter that we have today in our Bible, Peter says that God saves us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter understood being rich toward God looks like placing our faith in Jesus as our Savior. We have an inheritance that God is keeping for us in heaven. This man in the story had an inheritance that he was keeping for himself on earth. And when he died, he got none of it. God is keeping for his people an inheritance in heaven. That when we die, we get all of that. It's secure in him. First Peter also says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action 
and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we don't become rich toward God by doing good things or great things. We don't become rich toward God by living a moral life or being a good person. We are rich toward God by putting our faith in Jesus and our hope that Jesus will return one day. Now we've covered a lot of ground today. Four points. In this passage, Jesus warns his disciples, his followers, of four dangers to their faith and faithfulness. We talked about hypocrisy, which is saying one thing or believing one thing and doing something else, and believing something else. Inconsistency between what people see and what we really believe. We talked about misplacing our fear, fearing people instead of God, or fearing God in the wrong way, that we would fear his judgment. The third danger was ignoring God or denying God. And then fourth, we just looked at coveting, wanting satisfaction in this life now, instead of placing our hope in the future inheritance that is in Christ. So friends, consider yourself warned. Will you heed the warning? Will you take the danger that we face seriously and change your life? When the typhoon comes or we're faced with a global pandemic, we adjust our lives to protect ourselves as much as we can. We research, we talk to friends, we listen to experts. How can we stay out of danger? We should approach these spiritual dangers, these dangers to our faith and faithfulness, with at least as much or more attention. Our eternal lives depend on it. So friends, watch out. Look to Jesus as Savior and follow Him all your days. Let's pray. God, thank you for warning us of the dangers of our own hearts. We ask that you would search us, Lord. Help us to daily commit our lives to you. God, we thank you for Jesus, that we might experience your love and your grace through his death, resurrection, our salvation in him. We pray this in Jesus' name.